In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus gives us a shocking parable. You know how most movies work, or at least the movies that I watch. Usually there's a good guy and then there's a bad guy. And pretty much all the time, by the end of the movie, the good guy has gotten the bad guy. At least that's the way most movies that I watch work. In this parable, the bad guy and the good guy go into the temple to pray. This is probably during the morning or afternoon sacrifices. And the outcome of the story is that the good guy loses and the bad guy wins. Jesus rarely gives us what we expect when he tells us parables. That's why they're so effective and this parable is no different. Luke is careful to tell us who Jesus is speaking to. And Luke tells us three things about them. Our passage starts off, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. First, Jesus is talking to people who think that they were right, who thought that they were righteous. They saw themselves as good, virtuous, moral people. And this self-righteousness leads to two consequences. Luke tells us they trust in themselves. They are self-reliant. They don't need anyone else. They certainly don't need anyone else telling them that they need to be saved from something or rescued from something because of their moral qualities. If you told them they did, they'd say, saved from what? I'm fine as I am. Thank you very much. Who do you think you are to tell me I need to be saved from something? And then Luke adds that they are contemptuous of others. And that follows from their self-righteousness. They see the best in themselves and credit the best in themselves to their own account. They shut their eyes to their deep sinfulness. They completely fail to see it. But their eyes are wide open to the sinfulness and failings of others. So they look down their noses at other people with contempt. Some of them might be too polite to say so, but they despise other people. A good example of this comes from what what historians call the Wesleyan revivals in the 1700s. A series of revivals led by two brothers, both of them Anglican priests, John Wesley and Charles Wesley. This movement would eventually become the Methodist movement. They began preaching to large crowds and informing the people who listened to them of their sinfulness and for their need for repentance. And one of the Wesley's followers was a woman named the Countess of Huntington. She was an aristocrat, that's why she's called the Countess of Huntington, and she would write letters to her other aristocratic friends sharing the gospel with them. And some of those friends wrote back. One of those friends was the Duchess of Buckingham, who responded with a letter that drips with indignation. She writes, the Duchess of Buckingham writes, I thank your ladyship for information on the Methodist preaching. Their doctrines are strongly tinctured with impertinence toward their superiors. It is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches who crawl the earth. The Duchess of Buckingham was just the kind of people Jesus was talking to. But you know, any of us could be too. Oh, you might say, I'm not self-righteous. I am not one of those self-righteous people. Hmm. So how does the Pharisee fit in with these people? Well, he meets all three of these qualities. Jesus tells us the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
First, he's self-righteous. Don't be fooled when he starts off by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He doesn't mean it, as is obvious from what he says about himself. He might as well have said, God, I thank myself that I'm not like other men. He doesn't thank God for being the source of goodness within him. He's completely self-righteous. He gives a short list of the things that he does. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's boasting that he does way more than what the Mosaic law demands. The law of Moses only requires one day of fasting a year on the day of atonement. The Pharisee fasts twice a week. He beats that over a hundred times over. A hundred times more than what the law demands. Jesus points out elsewhere that the Pharisees tithe literally of everything they get. Even when they go out in the herb garden and pick some herbs, they'll take a tenth of the herbs and drop it in the offering basket. Far beyond what the law calls for. Secondly, he trusts in himself. Again, he might as well have said, God, I think myself I'm not like other men. At least that would have been honest. But he's not even aware of his dishonesty. There's no repentance in him, no grief over his sin, no desire to turn from it, no sense of need for atonement for his sin, no love for God or thankfulness in response to God's redeeming love. And of course, thirdly, he has contempt for others. Did you happen to catch that both men in this parable are standing away from the crowd? We'll get to the tax collector in a moment and why he's standing away from the crowd. But this Pharisee is standing away is standing away from the crowd. His contempt for the tax collector is obvious, but he also stands apart from the others in the temple. He doesn't want to be contaminated by their proximity. Not only does he not love or acknowledge God, he doesn't love his neighbors, the people who are literally next to him in the temple either. Certainly he has no love for the tax collector. In other words, he's completely failing to live up as God wills us to do and as he commands us to do. We give that short summary of the law at the start of every service. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But this man, this Pharisee, is totally unrighteous. He's utterly blind to the fact that he's unrighteous. In his pride and his arrogance, he foolishly thinks that he's righteous because of his external behavior that he governs so carefully. But he's deeply unrighteous in his internal perception of God, himself, and others. Now notice how the tax collector provides a contrast here. His external behavior makes him hated by all that he passes during the day. That's why this man stands far off from the crowd. No one in the crowd wants to have anything to do with him. He's a Jewish man who works for the Romans, collecting taxes. The Romans are the conquerors. They demand taxes from the people they conquered, and the tax collectors are those who collect the taxes. It would be like a Frenchman who collected taxes for the Nazis. They're seen as traitors to their own people. But not only are they traitors, they're thieves. The tax collection system worked like this. The government says everybody's going to pay this much much in taxes. And then people who want to be tax collectors bid on how much extra they'll send to to their superior. They say, okay, I'll, I'll take an extra 20%. I'll keep 10% for myself and I'll give you the other 10% if you give me this job. They take more than the law requires them to take. They have to bid for the job from the chief tax collector in the region. 
Jesus meets one of those men one time, a man named Zacchaeus, who is identified as the chief tax collector. He's the one who's taking the bribes from the other tax collectors, taking more than the law asked for. Why did the people pay more than the law demands? Because the tax collectors had the Roman army standing right beside them. So these tax collectors not only got sided with the Romans, but they're participating in a corrupt and crooked system. But he knew that the situation was even worse than his outward act showed because of what was inside him. His eyes were open to the evil in his heart and he was desperate knowing that he was helpless to help himself. Unlike the Pharisee, he saw himself with great clarity and accuracy. What he needed, if there was to be any hope, was to hear about the grace of God. He knows that he is unrighteous. He knows that he's not worthy to look towards God can't even lift his head up to heaven. He knows there's nothing left for him to do but throw himself on God and his mercy, deserving of anything but condemnation as he knew himself to be. Listen again to what he says about himself and let's ask ourselves whether we share his heart and his view of himself. This is verses 13 and 14. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That phrase that he beat his breast, it only shows up twice in scripture. One here, obviously, and also in Matthew when the men and women are leaving the scene of the crucifixion after Jesus has died. It's a cultural expression of great grief and sorrow. But hear what Jesus says next. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The self-righteous Pharisee does not go home justified, but the tax collector goes home justified. Now, do, do we know what it means when we say that something is justified? Justification, when you hear it in church, is a fancy theological term, so let's just unpack that a little bit. Think about some of the arguments you've had with someone or when you've disagreed with someone. I mean, I don't want to raise bad memories, but think about a time when you've, when you've had the need to justify yourself. What does that mean when you say, I need to justify myself? It means that you're convinced that you are right and someone else thinks that you're wrong. Perhaps you felt you'd had to justify your actions, explain why you were right to take the course of action that you did or make the decision you made or whatever it was. Either way, when you justify yourself, you try to prove that you're in the right, that you were, the, you, that you were right to do what you did, that you're innocent, that you're not guilty, and that no one should call you into question. That result is what justified means as a theological term. Or think about it maybe in a court of law where you stand accused of something you didn't do and finally the judge issues a judgment and declares you not guilty. You are then justified. You're declared to be in the right and innocent. And Jesus tells us at the end of the story that the tax collector is right with God and the Pharisee is not. How many of us here can say that we are right with God? innocent before God. The good news, the great news, the amazingly stupendous news is that you can be. Isn't that amazing? The tax collector went home justified, right with God. Isn't that amazing? To leave this building now justified, right with God, 
as innocent, saved, and forgiven. And notice something else here that's very important. Jesus explicitly states that the tax collector went home justified. Jesus does not say, and the tax collector left the temple, and then the man went home, and along the way he stopped to tell everyone he passed that he was so very sorry for having stolen from them. Finally, he got home, and he sat down and worked out that he had stolen and came up with a plan to pay it all back, and then the tax collector was justified. No, the man went home justified, right with God. The temptation, you see, for many preachers to try to turn the tax collector into another Pharisee and say, see, he, got, he, got his, he's got, he did everything right, and so he was justified with God. But no, the man went home justified. Now, of course, don't be mistaken. I assume that as the grace of God worked to sanctify this man, his behaviors would change, the Holy Spirit would work on his conscience. This isn't the end, but it's the beginning of being justified. The point here is that the man is justified, declared to be right with God simply through his faith that God would have mercy on him, a sinner. Even in that simple prayer, expresses the faith that God will have mercy on him, a sinner. Jeremiah in our Old Testament reading gave a more elaborate prayer than the tax collector, but nonetheless honest or dependent on God's grace. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name, for we have often rebelled, we have sinned against you, we acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, and the guilt of our ancestors, we have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us, remember your covenant with us, Our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. That's pretty elaborate and poetical. It works. But so does that much simpler prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And I trust that is the prayer on your heart. And I'll conclude with the last line from the Liturgy for Confession in the prayer book. The priest says to the repentant sinner, abide in peace and pray for me also, a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen.